Well, if I were to say to you, uh, today, Springwood, tomorrow, the world, uh, you'd probably know what I was talking about. I'd be talking about world domination. And you'd probably think I was a bit of a nutter for thinking that I, we could take over the world, or in fact that I, we are in control of Springwood for that matter. Uh, there aren't many people in history who've had enough pluck to actually try to take over the world. Um, it's sometimes said that Adolf Hitler was the first to say, today, Germany, tomorrow, the world, um, though it's doubtful that he actually said those wor words. However, in the Hitler Youth songbook, there is a song that says, there's a line in it that says, for today, Germany belongs to us and tomorrow, the entire world. And so that certainly was their aim, to take over the world. And it sounds a little bit chilling, doesn't it, if somebody's trying to take over the world, because that involves you and me as well. I mean, imagine if uh, they were singing that in China today. Today, China, tomorrow, the world. Uh, we in Australia might get, get a little bit nervous, uh, feel a little bit threatened. They're coming for us. They're coming for the whole world. Well, in our passage today, Jesus calls for nothing less than world domination. And he commands us, that is, his followers, to give ourselves to that cause of taking over the world for him. And, of course, many would say, well, you have no right. You Christians have no right to uh, plan to take over the world. Um, you should stay in your corner and leave everybody else alone. Yes, we're happy for you to do your thing, but don't force it on us. But we'll see here why we can't just stay in our corner. Of course, we can't force anything on anyone. Uh, but we'll see here why every Christian believer must be involved in the mission of winning the world for Christ. And we'll also see what is involved in that process as Jesus gives us quite specific marching orders here. Now, when you consider the context in which we find the Great Commission in the book of Matthew, I think that in some ways world mission is fairly obvious because the Great Commission uh, comes straight after Easter. And that, of course, is why we're preaching on it uh, this week. We've been through the Gospel of Matthew a little bit in the latter chapters uh, over Easter, uh, the triumphal entry, the death, and then the resurrection. And now we come to the last paragraph in the book of Matthew, which is the Great Commission. And so remember what happened at Jesus' death. Um, it was surrounded by these cosmic signs. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was in hell there on the cross, as we heard on Good Friday. Uh, there was a supernatural darkness that came over the whole land. Uh, the earth shook when he died. The temple curtain ripped. Uh, the, the rocks and the tombs broke open. And uh, that's what happened when he died. And then uh, the earth shakes again as his resurrection is revealed on the, on the Sunday morning, despite the best efforts of the Jewish leaders to cover it all up. Uh, he's been raised from the dead. And again, an earthquake and angels, etc., so the flow of the story really is today Easter, tomorrow the world. And it kind of makes sense. If he's conquered death and if he's conquered sin on behalf of all humanity and the whole created order and the very rocks shook when he achieved this, it's a cosmically significant thing that he's done. Of course it can't just stop there. The effects of Jesus' victory have to be spread. So the question is, what's next if this is what he has achieved? And so Matthew tells us the plan for world domination at the end of his book and involves each of us Christians in that task. 
So what we have in this paragraph is firstly the army and then the commander and then the command. So verses 16 and 17, the army. You might think if Jesus uh, wants to take over the whole world, he's going to need a pretty impressive army. And then maybe you'll look around and you'll think, not sure how this is going to go. You might even look at yourself and think, well, I know I'm no world beater, um, especially when it comes to evangelism and, you know, getting other people to become Christians. But the thing is that all through the Bible, God has made sure that he has won his victories through the weakness of his people rather than through their strength. All through the Old Testament happens. It's through the weakness of God's people that he wins so that everybody knows that it's him who's done it. Um, And so here we have Jesus' army gathering around him, looking very unlikely to win the world for him. Uh, So verse 16, they're willing, but they're weak. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Notice the 11. Uh, One commentator says, the number 11 limps. It is not perfect like 12. And that's the whole point. It's not quite there. They're not quite there. They limp. Uh, We know why there's only 11, of course. It's because Judas Iscariot uh, betrayed Jesus. And so it's a very sobering detail that reminds us of human frailty and weakness amongst Jesus' people. And this side of heaven, the church will always be 11-ish. If you haven't noticed it yet, this church is very 11-ish. We try, but we could try harder and we could do a lot better here, there and everywhere. We're kind of willing but we're very weak. Um, I'm sure you've realised that about us and maybe about yourself. Um, And the 11 here are called to Galilee. Now, Galilee um, is where the ministry of Jesus began, of course, but it wasn't a prestigious place. It wasn't the centre of influence. Uh, They even sort of talked funny in Galilee. You could tell a Galilean by their accent and I guess other people made fun of them. But Jesus regathers them here in Galilee on a mountain to launch the next phase of his mission. It has never been needed an an impressive earthly base, the mission of God. And we're told of the the state of the disciples themselves here as well in verse 17. They were worshipping, but they were wobbly at the same time. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And that's a fairly intriguing uh, little detail, isn't it? I mean, how is it that some of them doubted? What does it actually mean? There was probably more than just the 11 disciples there. I don't think we're meant to understand it as, okay, you've got the heroes of the faith on that side of the line, and then you've got the doubters on that side of the line, and Jesus worked with the heroes and the doubters fell by the wayside. I think uh, what we're being told is here is that they were kind of mixed these disciples. To varying degrees, they worshipped Jesus, but there was also some hesitation as well. Uh, The word doubt can mean hesitation. In other words, they weren't all 100% keen in their faith. Maybe even none of them were at 100% at this point. They could see the risen Jesus. I mean, imagine, there he is on this mountain in Galilee. They loved him. He's risen from the dead. Whatever the plan was, it seems to, seems to have worked, and that's very wonderful. So they bow down to him and they worship him as the divine son of God. It's incredible. But then on the other hand, what's he got planned for us now? Um, and I, I'm not sure if I'm really up for it. Um, the last few weeks have fairly, been fairly rough on me, and I'm not really sure that I'm fully on board with whatever he has planned next. 
worshipping but wobbly. And again, to varying degrees, that describes all of us. If Jesus' disciples meeting the newly risen Jesus on a mountain were not 100% in their faith, then should we be surprised when we find ourselves flagging a little bit as well? Uh, should we be surprised to learn that ministers and missionaries don't operate at 100% either? Uh, sometimes they just limp along in their own faith, even as they are trying to encourage others in theirs. We love Jesus, but we know we're a little bit wobbly at times, and that goes for all of us. And yet, Jesus gives them the mission anyway, and he gives us his mission anyway. It says, some doubted, and yet Jesus commissioned them to do his work just the same as he commissions us. What was he thinking, we might think? Well, the army is by no means perfect. The church has never been an army of heroes. It's just ordinary people to whom Jesus gives this great commission. And that, of course, means that none of us here is able to say, as long as we're a Christian, it's not for me. Uh, Jesus commissions these doubters, these people who weren't at 100%, um, nonetheless. So that's the army, a little bit like Dad's army, really, if you know that show from a long time ago. Uh, not the most impressive group in the world. And then you've got the commander in verse 18. And uh, here are the implications of Easter spelled out in one statement in verse 18. Jesus came to him and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now when you think about it, how could it be otherwise? If Jesus is the Son of God who has made atonement for the sins of the whole world and then conquered death itself... How could he not also lay claim to the whole world if he is the risen son of God? And when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, it includes all geography and all history. Um, in Psalm 2, God says to his son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. And what we're seeing here is that transaction has now taken place. God the Father, the creator of the whole world, has given all authority to his son who has paid for our sins and been brought back from the dead. And the phrase in heaven and on earth implies the whole created order. Every corner of and every realm in this creation has been given to Jesus to rule. And that means the furthest stars belong to him, the black holes we can take photos of and the ones we can't see yet, uh, the angels in the heavenly court answer to Jesus, uh, the demons and the dead in the underworld answer to Jesus, and every living creature answers to Jesus in every realm. And what this means for every person, for each of us, is that Jesus is unavoidable because God has put him in charge of this world. Uh, you can ignore him now, but you'll still have to face him later on the judgment day because we're told every knee will bow to him one way or the other. Or the other. Um, and if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you really have to believe that this is true as well. Jesus rules. And it's on that basis that Jesus says, well, tomorrow the world. He wants to take over the world because he already owns the world. The Father gave the world to him. Uh, I watched a movie the other night in which a guy took control of the entire universe by getting five special coloured stones and sticking them on his glove. Um, Unfortunately, he wasn't a very nice person. It didn't turn out very well for a while. Um, 
But that's how you get control of the universe in the movies. How did Jesus end up ruling the universe? Well, he died to pay for the sins of the whole world. He conquered death itself. And so God gave him all authority over everything. He earned rule over the universe by redeeming the universe. Um, so how is he going to claim the universe? That's the, that's the question. Believe it or not, he's going to claim the universe by using us, is what he says here. All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus begins with, therefore, since it belongs to him, he sends us on a mission to claim it for him. And so the first thing is the mindset. He says to us, go. He doesn't say, stay and get on with your life and do some fun things and enjoy yourself. And if you get a chance, can you do this for me as well? No, there is a sending taking place here. So there must be a very intentional going to do Christ's work. Uh, Jesus' disciples are all supposed to be going, in a sense, being sent. And since the sphere of Christ's authority is heaven and earth, then that is also the scope of our going. We have to make sure this is being done everywhere, which of course is why we send missionaries, etc., to all the different corners of the world. Elsewhere, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. And now here he is saying to all of his disciples, go. Uh, so we need to be the answer to our own prayers. We all need to be intentional in going about Christ's work. Now for some, that means going across the world. For some, it means going to Springwood. For others, it means going from Springwood. Uh, for some, it just means going across the street. Uh, for all Christians, it's being intentional and purposeful and busy about this work that Christ has given us to do. And so I might ask you tonight, have you thought about what your part in Christ's mission might be? What, what are you going to be going in order to do? Hopefully, it's prayer. You're praying that uh, God's kingdom come and God's will be done. Uh, hopefully, it's witness. You're speaking when you get a chance. Maybe it's preaching. Maybe it's helping. Maybe it's funding. Maybe it's inviting. Hopefully it's a combination of some or all of those things. But when Jesus says go, he means get busy with this work that I'm giving you to do. That is all of his people. And essentially, what is that work? What, are we, what is our goal? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to feed the world? Are we trying to save the whales? Are we trying to keep the peace? All of those good things. But his command here is make disciples. That's the goal. That's the main verb in this sentence. That's the mission in a nutshell. It's to make disciples. You're a disciple of Jesus. Now go and get more people to become disciples as well. What does being a disciple mean? It's, it's, a, it's an odd sort of word in this day and age. It's much more than just being a churchgoer. It means having a personal allegiance to Jesus. It means looking to Jesus. It means admiring Jesus, listening to him, hanging on his words, sitting at his feet, praying to him, doing what he did, doing what he says, following him as a disciple follows his or her teacher. It's being a Jesus person. 
And so what Jesus is telling us to do here, since we love Jesus, our task is to get others to love him and follow him as well. And there are two activities that Jesus associates with the making of disciples, both of which are very wonderful. The first is baptising into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice the singular name, one name, but three persons. Um, So it's not a triple process, as if we begin three separate relationships, one with the Father, one with the Son, one with the Holy Spirit. But when you become a disciple of Jesus, you come into the name, singular, of the triune God and into fellowship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit, a package deal. And the baptism symbolises the washing and sort of the overwhelming of a person's life in this new relationship with God through Jesus in the Spirit. It's a spiritual reality and an eternal reality and a new birth from above. The person has started to follow Jesus. They have come into the name and into the life of the triune God. So baptism symbolises something very wonderful. Uh, And we get the privilege of seeing that symbolised when somebody comes into relationship with Christ. The second activity is teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Notice it doesn't just say teaching them from the Bible. It says teaching them to obey. So this is a matter of living, not just knowing and thinking. We're supposed to be developing disciples as well as making new ones. And so this is supposed to be our mindset when we come to church or when we go to our small group. What are we trying to do? We're trying to teach and train each other as disciples of Jesus. We're teaching each other to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And at the end of the day, there's really no other reason for bothering with church buildings and chairs and staff and um, carpet and foyers and facilities and music and everything else. There's no reason for any of that other than we think those things are helpful in the task of making disciples. That's what we're supposed to be on about. And Jesus wants to see this happening throughout all the nations. This is his plan to take over the world. His people go out and they make more disciples one by one. It's a wide work as well as a deep work because we're teaching each other to obey everything he's commanded us. And that means that um, we will still be doing this work when Jesus returns. Hopefully when he returns, he'll find us all very busily doing this work of making disciples and he'll say, right, time's up now. And so the question is, are we, are we doing that work? Are we committed to that work or are we distracted by other things? Now, when you consider how many people don't yet believe, um, the very small proportion of Christians here in this area where we live, I mean, most people in the Springwood district are at home watching telly at the moment. Uh, they're not here because they don't have any interest in Jesus. Um, there's only a very small percentage um, in our area that actually believe in Jesus and know him. Uh, And then you think about how many people across the world haven't even heard the name of Jesus before. Uh, And then when you also consider how far disciples of Jesus like us have to go in learning to obey everything that he's commanded us, so there's there's depth to build into those who are already Christians as well, you realise that we have so much work to do in fulfilling this great commission that Jesus has given us. That can be a little bit discouraging, I suppose, when you just think, oh. But on the other hand, the original disciples may never have thought the gospel would make it to Australia, 
Um, you can imagine them there on the mountain in Galilee. Obviously, they didn't know Australia existed. But, you know, there's a whole... Maybe they thought, thought the earth was flat as well, but they, like, they couldn't have imagined the gospel sort of spreading. And yet here we are in Australia, together worshipping Jesus 2,000 years later. That's some encouraging progress in some ways, if you look at it that way. There are reasons for encouragement to keep going. If the gospel has made it to here, it can also keep going and therefore we should keep putting it out there. Um, the gospel is not a failure story, it's a success story so far, I would have thought, even though we know there is so much work left to do. And of course, the main reason for optimism is not our skills and our strength, because the church is still very 11-ish, very weak and very wobbly. It's the assurance that we're given here by Jesus as his last words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's how the Gospel has got this far. And that's why it'll keep going further, because Jesus is with us. Sometimes we can be very pessimistic and defeatist about Gospel work, because it certainly can be discouraging and we do feel our own weakness uh, and our own hypocrisy sometimes. And uh, the making of even one disciple takes really quite an extraordinary miracle. But Christ is with us. That's what he has promised. In fact, when he says he's with us always, literally says, I am with you each of the days uh, until he returns, I presume. In other words, there is, n there is not one day when he is not with us in this task of disciple making. And that encourages me even in the days when it doesn't seem to be going very well, Christ has not abandoned me or us. He is still with us. So Jesus is not a commander who just gives the command to charge and then sort of goes back to his tent and has a cool drink. He is with us, and it is he personally who will win the world. But he does that through us. And so Matthew ends his gospel here with this great commission as if to say, Phase one is done, the victory is won, all authority has been given to Jesus. Now phase two has to begin. He has to extend his rule over the whole world and that involves you people. And so Matthew 28 is open-ended. It's, it's an end and it's a beginning. In one sense, it's up to us to write the story of Matthew 29. That is the next chapter in the story. As weak and wobbly as we are, he has commissioned us to do his work and write the next chapter. And it's wonderful work to do. I mean, world domination doesn't sound like a very friendly sort of thing. Um, but the rule of Christ is a rule of grace and salvation and eternal life. And what we are bringing to people is the wonder of being reconciled to their creator. We are ambassadors of mercy. We are bringing the best news that a person could ever hear as we try to encourage them to love Jesus uh, as we do. So we need to be giving this a go and giving it our best. Um, it's the main thing that Jesus has left us here to do. It's the main thing that Jesus is doing in this world. And we have each other. We can do this together. Um, read about it on the front of the weekly news this week. It's, this is not a solo mission. We can actually help each other in this. We have a part to play as a community, reaching people with the gospel. And we have Jesus with us each and every day in this task. So I'd like to encourage you um, to be deliberate about this and maybe even to pick a handful of people in your mind. We gave you some little cards to do this earlier in the year. 
pick some people in your mind and pray for them. And maybe think about how you can perhaps be part of moving them a little bit closer to Jesus or a little bit further in Jesus. Um, maybe think about how you can list the help of other Christians to, to be an influence on these people and have a go at helping them to love Jesus and grow in him. Um, during the notices, I outlined the opportunities we've got in the next couple of months to be trained and to, to invite people along. And there's lots of stuff happening in this space at the moment in our church, especially this term. Um, and I'd encourage you to, to make the most of those things, to be trained um, and to invite people along. But maybe right now, just to finish, uh, I could ask each of you to think of one person whom you'd love to see become a disciple of Jesus and then one other person whom you'd love to see grow as a disciple of Jesus. So maybe now you've got two people in your mind. And I'll give you a moment to pray for those two people just by yourself quietly um, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So let's do that. Father, we give you thanks that you involve us in your work, in the work of Jesus, as weak and wobbly as we are. We thank you for the chance to show your glory as you work through our efforts. Um, we thank you, Father, for the wonderful news that Jesus is risen, that he is the saviour, and now he rules your universe. We thank you, Lord, that that is such good news, and we pray for your mercy on those around us and on your world as a whole, that more and more people would come into your kingdom, that we would see many people become disciples of Jesus. And we pray for your people that each of us would be growing in obedience to all that Jesus has commanded us. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus has promised to be with us every day, until the end of the age. Uh, and we pray that we would see him working wonderfully and having great mercy on those around us and to us until that time that he returns. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.